0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry.
1: <sighs> Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
0: <sighs> ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
2: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. On December 22nd of 1895, Wilhelm Runchen took the world's first medical x-ray, in which one could clearly see the bones of his wife Bertha's hand and her wedding ring. Upon viewing the picture, she commented, quote, I have seen my death. While x-rays are commonplace in the world today, the vast majority of our population would probably be hard-pressed to explain exactly how they work. This mysterious, magical nature of x-rays makes it ideal for the world of espionage and plays an essential part in today's story, the woman with the x-ray camera. 19-year-old Pearl Lusk had recently graduated from high school in Quakertown, Pennsylvania when she decided to pick up and move to New York City in the fall of 1946. For a short period of time, the young blonde lived with her mother and stepfather, the Szymanskis in Brooklyn. But as soon as she secured a job as a salesgirl at the Oppenheim Collins Department Store in Manhattan, she hightailed it out of her mom's place. Now with a steady income, Pearl was able to rent a small room on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for $5 per week. You know, nothing fancy. Now everything seemed to be going very smoothly for Pearl. That is until December 24th, Christmas Eve. As with all seasonal jobs, the Christmas rush was now over and Pearl found herself unemployed. So making ends meet was going to be really tough, and with her newly found freedom, the last thing she wanted to do was go back and live with mom. Now a few weeks prior to losing her job, she had met a personal, really good-looking man while riding the subway. He introduced himself as Alan LaRue and asked her to accompany him for a drink, but she politely declined the invitation. Fast forward to December 26th, that's two days after losing her job, and can you guess who she runs into on the subway? Yes, the one and only Alan LaRue. And this time she agreed to have that drink with him at a restaurant on 14th Street. At one point during the date, the conversation turned to what each other does for a living. Pearl, as you'd expect, really didn't have much to say, you know, other than to tell her sob story about how she had just been laid off. LaRue, on the other hand, was dutifully employed as an adjuster for an insurance company. He explained that he was currently investigating a case of stolen jewels and that the main suspect was a 28 year old woman named Olga Trapani. She lived at 1434 57th Street in Brooklyn. Knowing that she was in much need of a job, LaRue asked Pearl if she wanted to come work for him as his assistant. Her job would be to trail Ms. Trapani and collect evidence for his company's case against her. Pearl, who just happened to be a big fan of detective stories, enthusiastically accepted his offer. Pearl Lusk, unemployed sales clerk, was now Pearl Lusk, private investigator. So Leroux took Pearl to the suspect's place of work. That was the Croydon Hat Company at 43 West 39th Street in Manhattan to point out the suspect to her. And for the next few days, Pearl trailed Mr. Trapani's nearly every move to and from work. Then, on Monday, December 30th, LaRue handed Pearl a package that he said had a camera hidden inside. But this wasn't any ordinary camera. It was a special model that took x-ray pictures. All Pearl had to do was follow Ms. Trapani and snap the picture. So that evening, Pearl picked up Ms. Trapani's trail as she left work. They both boarded the subway at the Times Square BMT station, and she sat near her until they exited the train at the 55th Street Elevated Station in Brooklyn. As soon as the two women stepped on the station platform, Pearl pointed the box at the suspect and pulled the loop trip wire that extended out the bottom of the box. And then all she did was board the train back to Times Square and hand the camera to LaRue, you know, so he could develop the film. The next morning, that's the morning of New Year's Eve, Pearl met LaRue at 8 a.m. at the automat near Union Square. He informed her that the picture quote didn't take. But there was no worry. He gave her another X-ray camera, one that was supposedly more powerful than the first. It was concealed in red and green holiday wrapping paper, and this camera was both larger and heavier. A similar tripwire extended from the bottom of the box to trigger the shutter. Now, just before she left to carry out her day's assignment, Larue added that she should quote, remember to aim it low at her waist. He added quote, that's probably where she's carrying the jewels pinned inside her dress at her waist. Once again, Pearl followed the suspect until they arrived at the Times Square station. As soon as they both exited the subway car, Pearl kneeled down on the platform, carefully pointed the box at her waist, and BOOM! Ms. Gipani fell to the ground and started screaming. Transit officer Joseph Bonicelli ran up to see what was happening, and Pearl said, quote, I just took this woman's picture and somebody shot her. It wasn't until another officer ripped open her package to reveal that her x ray camera was really a sawed off shotgun that was encased in two wooden cream cheese boxes that Pearl realized that she was the one who had done the shooting. Patrolman William Walsh asked Miss Trapani, Why did this woman shoot you? To which she responded, You fool, she didn't shoot me. My husband did. The victim told another person, quote, I'm going to die. Well, he got me this time. Now, if he wants me, he can. I'm crippled. What happened to the police? He must have been too smart for them. Someone applied a tourniquet to stop the bleeding in Ms. Trapani's leg, and both women were rushed to Roosevelt Hospital for treatment. And it was there, at the hospital, that all the pieces of this bizarre puzzle came together. That's because 28-year-old Olga Trapani had been Olga Trapani Rocco until her marriage of one and a half years to Alphonse Rocco had been annulled two months prior. Her husband had become insanely jealous, and she had been living in fear of him ever since. The police then showed a picture of Mr. Rocco to Pearl, and she confirmed that he was in fact the same man. You know, Alan LaRue, the guy who had hired her for that supposed investigative job. And strangest of all, the police had already been on the hunt for him. For weeks! For weeks! You see, a few months earlier, that's back in October, the former Mrs. Rocco had run into her ex-husband while on the train commuting to work. Olga mentioned that she wasn't feeling so well, so Rocco did the gentlemanly thing. He offered to drive her back home. So they exited the train, you know, crossed over to the other side of the track, and picked up the train back to the station where they had both originally boarded. Now, her decision to get off that train and into his car would prove to be one of the biggest mistakes of her life. That's because Rocco pulled a knife out. He held it to Olga's throat and threatened her life if she didn't cooperate. They drove to Poughkeepsie, which lies north of Manhattan, probably by about, you know, about two hours by car. Upon arriving upstate, Rocco rented a tourist cabin for the two of them. Somehow, after five days of being held captive, Olga convinced her husband that they needed to go back to Brooklyn so she can get more clothing. The whole ordeal appeared to end when Rocco dropped her off at her niece's house. Now, as bad as kidnapping may sound, it was not the reason the police were looking for Rocco. That's because a few weeks later, that's on November 1st, things just got worse for Olga. Quote, I was helping my mother set the dinner table, and the window was open, and all of a sudden I felt a very sharp sting in my right leg, and when I bent down to touch it, it was bleeding. She had been shot in almost the same exact spot that that pseudo-X-ray camera would get her a short time later. The police were then contacted and Olga told them everything. The NYPD was now on the lookout for their prime suspect in the shooting, Al Rocco. Then, after spending 10 days in the hospital, Olga returned to work and she spotted Rocco peering out from behind one of the pillars that supported the elevated train on Utrecht Avenue. On December 9th, she received a phone call while at work. Olga, in her statement to the police, said, quote, He said he was watching me. He knew everything. He knew when I went to work, and that he did not aim right the first time, but that when he would aim again, he would kill me. Those threatening phone calls continued on an almost daily basis. On several occasions, she ran into Rocco while on her commute. In fact, things got so bad that the police agreed to provide officers to escort her back and forth to her job each day. But the detectives didn't show up on the morning of December 31st, so Olga's sister escorted her to the train. There was absolutely no way that anyone could have anticipated Rocco's next move. At 9.45am, Pearl Lusk would unsuspectingly fire that camera gun, and Olga would ultimately and sadly have her leg amputated. A nine-state police search was now underway for one Alphonse Rocco. At first, the police had no credible leads as to his whereabouts, but that all changed on January 5th, that's six days after the shooting. Rocco, a small-time hoodlum with a criminal record for stealing cars, had gone to the home of one Dominic Rizzo, claiming that he had a lead on some scarce automobile parts. Now, the Rizzo family had known him as Alan Lamonte, so they had no reason to be suspicious of Rocco in any way. The following day, Mr. Rizzo, his nephew, and this guy that they knew as Alan Lamonte, they drove to the Catskills to get the supposed parts. After stopping in Cairo, New York, to grab a bite to eat, Rocco just drove off in Mr. Rizzo's car, you know, leaving these two guys stranded in what probably seemed like the middle of nowhere to them. Think about it, these are city guys. When Rizzo called home to explain to his wife what had just transpired, she went through a traveling bag that Rocco had left behind in their home. She found that it contained twenty-two caliber cartridges and documents that positively identified him as the man that the police had been searching for. After stealing the car, Rocco drove about 30 minutes to the northwest and brandishing two guns, he entered the home of Mr. and Mrs. Frank Nash in Broome's center. He told them that he planned to stay indefinitely. Yet, the very next day, he decided it was time to leave, and he ordered Mr. Nash to drive him back to New York City. But when Mr. Nash informed Rocco that his car was in need of repair and it wouldn't make it that far, Rocco opted for the nearby town of Grand Gorge. Then, for some reason, along the way, Rocco changed his mind, and he demanded that Mr. Nash drive him to the farm of a hunting buddy, a guy named Leroy Lewis. Clearly, these were the moves of a desperate man, and the police weren't far behind at this point. They surrounded the farmhouse, and when they entered, Mrs. Lewis informed them that Rocco had left about a half hour earlier, and he took one of their sleeping bags. Now, with 10 inches of snow on the ground, it really wasn't that difficult for the police to follow Rocco's trail into the woods. After being spotted sleeping under a tree in the darkness at night, the police just fanned out around him, and they fired a warning shot into the air. Rocco, of course, fired four times in the direction of the flash, and the officers returned fire. With Rocco still halfway within his sleeping bag, three bullets brought an end to his life. In his possession, the troopers found that the 29-year-old fugitive had two guns, $62.98 in cash, a picture of his ex-wife with another girl, a letter from another woman, his Class 4F military draft card, two pair of eyeglasses, his driver's license, a flashlight, and a wristwatch. As for Pearl Lusk, she was released by the court several days later. She was never charged with a crime. Olga Trapani remained in the hospital for about two months. She ultimately sued the city of New York for two hundred thousand dollars, that would be about two million today, you know, basically claiming that the police had failed to protect her from her former husband. You know, even though she had filed numerous complaints against them and they had promised to safeguard her. New York State Supreme Court Justice Joseph A. Cox dismissed the suit on August 21st of 1953. While sympathetic, he said that she didn't have a case. That's because the complaints have been filed against her husband, not against Pearl Lusk. While they should have protected her from Al Rocco, there was no way that the police could have anticipated that they needed to protect her from Pearl Lusk and her X-ray camera gun. Amazingly, Pearl and Olga became casual friends afterwards, occasionally seeing each other from time to time. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: This labor pirating situation is a very serious one for all of us because of the way it cuts down on war production. And now, with Winstead murdered, your district attorney's job becomes doubly difficult. Before we hear from him again, though, you know, men, in these busy days when so much depends on the work we turn out, it's very important to keep physically fit. That's why we get as much outdoor exercise as we can. It's so good for our general health. But it can be mighty bad for your hair. For the hot sun bakes it and makes it look dry. And the shower bath or swim afterward drenches your hair, making it look lifeless and stringy. Yes, that's true. But there's an easy, speedy way to help overcome the damaging effects of sun and water. A 60-second workout with Vitalis. V-I-T-A-L-I-S. Vitalis. This brisk massage with Vitalis loosens your scalp, stimulates the circulation... Routes unsightly, embarrassing loose dandruff, and helps to prevent excessive falling hair. The pure vegetable oils of Vitalis come to the rescue of your oil depleted scalp. So when you comb your hair, it lies smartly and smoothly in place and looks well groomed. That's why thousands of men in all walks of life use Vitalis and the 60 second workout, in spite of summer sun and soaking water. This famous Vitalis workout helps you to keep your hair for the days to come and keeps your hair good-looking every day.
2: That commercial for Vitalis is from the August 19, 1942 broadcast of Mr. District Attorney. That particular episode was titled Labor Pirates. The series ran on radio from 1939 to 1952 and was supposedly inspired by Thomas E. Dewey's successful crackdown on organized crime in the 1930s. That included the conviction of Lucky Luciano. This made him a national celebrity in his day, and it ultimately got him elected as governor of New York State. At least according to the famous November 3, 1948, Chicago Daily Tribune headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, he was elected president of the United States. But, as we all know, Truman really won. Anyway, as for the sponsor of the show, Vitalis, it was just one of hundreds of hair tonics sold in the early 1900s, but this was one of the few to grow into a national brand. What's interesting about Vitalis and tonics in general is what is not explicitly stated in the commercial. With lines like helps prevent excessive falling hair and helps you keep your hair for days to come, they're implying that the use of these tonics help to prevent baldness, which of course they can't. By the 1970s, wet, slicked back hair had fallen out of favor and the market for these hair tonics vaporized. The Vitalis name is still used today for shampoo, conditioners and the like, but finding the tonic formulation is difficult because it's no longer marketed in the U.S., although you can purchase it online. In other news, on September 22nd of 1931, a 35-year-old painter in Chippendale, Australia whose name was Charles Edmund Neal slipped off of a ladder that he was working on and he fell 30 feet, that's about 9 meters, to the pavement below. A radio message was broadcast requesting that his wife report to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital because her husband was dying. So Mrs. Winifred Neal did just that. Although she was unable to see his face, she was able to identify her husband and he soon slipped away. But shortly after that, another woman named Mrs. Dorothy Neal also identified the dead man as her husband, and in this case, he really was. It was an honest mistake. That's because both wives had the same exact last name and were married to unemployed painters. And get this, both of them were living at Hammond's Hotel, where the accident took place. And on top of that, both wives were living in Mosman, with different women named Mrs. Brown. Another amazing coincidence was told in the news on May 23rd of 1932. While on a flight from Russia back in November of 1920, a man named Alexis Davidoff gave his trench coat to someone in need. What happened to the coat after that is unknown, but imagine his surprise when he saw that same coat being worn by actress Miriam Hopkins 11 years later while Davidoff was serving as a technical director on the movie set for The World, The Flesh, The Devil. Apparently, the wardrobe department at Paramount Studios had been purchasing garments from Russian refugees for the past decade, and his coaches happened to be among the several hundred that they had obtained. And our last story for today was reported in the National Press on February 11th of 1959. It seems that way back in 1918, Mrs. Margaret Todd Beveridge, who was 16 at the time, needed a sweater for the troops serving in World War One. She turned it over to the Red Cross for shipment overseas, and that was the last she had ever heard of it. At least that was until 1954, when the sweater ended up in the hands of an Amman Jordan tailor named Tanas Badra. He had obtained it through a Protestant missionary. Mr. Badra noticed the tag that Mrs. Beveridge had sewn into the sweater, which included her name and her New Rochelle, New York address. So he decided to write to her and told her of his dream to come to the United States. He would prove to be too old to make the voyage, but the beverages were able to arrange for Mr. Bajras' son, Ibrahim, his wife, and three children to come over. They arrived in New York City on February 10th of 1959 aboard the Giulio Cesar. I guess that's Julius Caesar in probably Italian, uh, which, of course, I don't speak. Uh, As for the sweater, it became tattered and worn, so,
1: of course, it was thrown out. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, that's a wrap for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. You can find additional true stories just like the one that you just heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes or just about any other podcast software. Like the show on Facebook by doing a quick search for the Useless Information podcast. Lastly, if you've never done so, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page on iTunes. While iTunes doesn't host any podcasts, it's really just an index. Nearly all of the download requests come through them, so good reviews are always greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.